This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, committed to teaching, research, and professional training with degree programs in multiple locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Good evening from Charleston, I'm Bob Brunner. Welcome back to the legislature today. We're only three days into our 2023 legislative session. A lot's happening. As of this morning, between the two chambers, more than 700 bills have been introduced. Most go to committee. A couple dozen have been passed out of the Senate already and moved to the House of Delegates. Key among those bills is one that will split the Department of Health and Human Resources into three units. More about that later. The House is taking a more measured approach, hasn't moved beyond the first reading of any bill. Later in the show, we're going to have a roundtable discussion between our reporters and a guest reporter to get their takes on what they've seen and how the session's shaping up. Before we get to that, in Governor Jim Justice's State of the State Address Wednesday, he discussed giving additional money to what he called crisis birthing centers. A statement from the governor's press secretary says the governor's proposal would allocate $1 million in funding for statewide crisis pregnancy centers. The program would be administered by DHHR and pregnancy centers would apply for grants based on their needs. The funding would not be given as a direct payment to any single center, but would be distributed statewide to centers based on their identified needs. Last summer, the legislature passed a law during the special session that outlaws abortion with a few exceptions for rape and preserving the life of the mother. This session, HB 2002 is in the House Health and Human Resources Committee. Among other things, it creates the West Virginia Mothers and Babies Pregnancy Support Program, which funds pregnancy help organizations to encourage women to give birth in the case of an unplanned pregnancy. Ann Ali, the House Communications Director, issues a statement about the bill. In part, it says the chair and vice chair of the House Health and Human Resources Committee were proud to get right to work early in the regular session on a bill that looks to support mothers, babies, families, and children. The bill's far-reaching, including tax credits and tax exemptions, which will take time for the House Finance Committee to discuss. Delegate Mike Pushkin, the co-chairman of the state Democratic Party, has some thoughts on the bill before Friday's House floor session. Well, the bill, it's, it did, bill did several things. It did a lot of good things. And well, one of the things, it set up a process for public funding for these crisis pregnancy centers. And while, you know, both sides of the aisle want to do whatever we can uh, for young mothers and for newborn babies, of course we do. However, uh, these types of centers 
are, are not licensed healthcare facilities. Uh, there's absolutely no regulation. I think we need to be very careful when we're talking about spending taxpayer dollars on a completely unregulated industry. Since the only clinic that provided abortion services in the state has stopped offering that procedure, Chris Schultz set out to find out more about what crisis pregnancy centers are. He speaks with Margaret Pomponio, the chief executive officer of WV Free in our studio. Margaret Chapman Pomponio is the chief executive officer of WV Free, which works on advocacy and education of reproductive health, rights, and justice. She joins me now on the legislature today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Margaret, in the state of the state address, Governor Jim Justice pledged $1 million for crisis pregnancy centers. The term that the House is using in Bill 2002, excuse me, is pregnancy support organizations. But what exactly do you understand these places to be? Well, West Virginia Free fully supports support for pregnant people. Um, you know, as a mom myself, I know how important it is to get the care that you need for both yourself and your children, your baby. Um, and we think there are a lot of things that the legislature could do and the governor could do uh, rather than funneling money into these so-called pregnancy care organizations. Um, we're very concerned about them because there's no accountability in the funding. Um, they're not medical facilities, they're not regulated, and um, they're, not, you know, they're not even um, regulated by HIPAA. So we're looking at um, agencies that you know, we'd be creating new infrastructure um, for when we already have good programs in West Virginia that are deserving of funding and more funding, you know, like Birth to Three, um, Family Planning Program, on and on. So help me understand, um, you know, if these are not medical centers, if these are not providing licensed medical aid to pregnant people, what are these places doing? Well, most of these are actually um, Christian affiliated organizations. They're not, again, they're not healthcare facilities. Um, and they have popped up to try to dissuade someone from seeking abortion care. And now we all know that abortion is illegal in West Virginia now. Um, and so it's curious to us that the legislature is continuing to focus on abortion. You know, abortion is written into this bill also. These, any organization that would get state support um, wouldn't even be able to say the word abortion. We, we have concerns about free speech issues there, but it also really lifts up the fact that many in the legislature seem to be obsessed with abortion, and that is not serving our people. People need health care, and they need honesty and transparency. I, I do want to talk um, about the continuing discussion about abortion in just a moment, but uh, you talk about you know the need for health care in this state. The state is facing, facing excuse me, a shortage of obstetricians, and even accessing the existing care that is already in the state is extremely difficult for a lot of people, especially in rural areas. Um, what I'm curious is, you know, our reproductive health care system does need help right now. Uh, where does this plan fall short of that need? Well, I'm glad you lifted up the shortage of OBGYNs, and certainly the ban on abortion is going to further drive them out of state, and it's also going to disincentivize OBGYNs from locating here, um, really contributing to our already vast maternity deserts. 
And so we would like to see that addressed. You know, the, the legislature could establish funding to help rural areas recruit OBGYNs to try to offset the damaging effects of the abortion ban that took away providers' ability to provide the care that they think is best for their patient. So, yeah, I mean, going back to what you said uh, just a moment ago, House Resolution 301, uh, which was taken up earlier this week, states that the criminalization of abortion must be only the beginning of West Virginia's post-Roe initiatives. On the other side, the Senate is considering a bill that's targeting chemical or drug-induced abortions. As an advocate of reproductive health, uh, what do you realistically, what would you realistically like to see happen in this session? Well, I think at a minimum, they ought to ramp up funding for our state family planning program that's housed at DHHR. We have a good family planning program and, and a lot of clinics around the state, but they're underfunded. You know, their hours of operation are short, making it hard for working people um, to get there, uh, you know, during the open hours. Um, and also we really need to advertise their services more. You know, that'll help reduce unintended pregnancy. Um, we should all be on board with that. So we'd like to see more support for that. Um, we'd like the maternity care deserts addressed um, to try to offset the ban again. And then more, um, well, not more, we need paid family leave. Um, you know, that resolution that was passed in tandem with the ban um, really should say to people that the legislature supports families. And if they support families, they need to enable workers to take care of a sick child or have some time off to care for a baby after birth. So, Margaret, I use the qualifier realistic. Uh, in, in a perfect scenario, what would you like to see the legislature do? Well, um, I think that it might be a heavier lift to really address the maternity care deserts. Um, so realistically, they could do a study resolution and really study it in you know, the months to come and make some sort of meaningful policy um, after they understand the problem more. Um, we would love to see um, birth workers uh, more accessible, so doulas. Um, you know, the March of Dimes says that having a pregnancy support person like a doula really improves birth outcomes and the health of the mother. Um, so we would love to see Medicaid reimbursement for that as well. Um, but we also recognize that a lot of legislators don't know what doulas are, a lot of the public. That's D-O-U-L-A, doula. Um, I encourage people to look it up and learn more. I had a doula after the birth of my twins and it was transformational. So one last question for you, um, and this is a little bit broader, but last year your organization put together a report that tracks how legislators voted on reproductive health issues. Um, is that something that you're gonna continue doing this year? Yeah, we will be looking at every vote to see how they have voted. Are they making good on some of the promises that they've made about supporting women and families? Um, we have a lot of uh, requests from the public. How did such and such vote? Where is this? And so we will be cataloging that and, and doing some education on it. Well, Mac Margaret Chapman Punio, CEO of WV Free, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for that report. West Virginia's Department of Health and Human Resources dominates our government landscape with a staff of nearly 6,000 people working in a multitude of bureaus, divisions, departments, and an annual budget in excess of a billion dollars. It touches nearly every life in the state one way or another, 
For decades, attempts to reform DHHR have not been successful. In the last legislative general session, Governor Jim Justice vetoed a bill that would have divided the giant agency into two departments. Now, both houses and the Senate are proposing the section DHHR into three separate agencies with three distinct cabinet secretaries. Deputy House Speaker Matthew Rohrbach, a Republican from Cabell County and a practicing surgeon, is the lead sponsor of House Bill 2247, calling for DHHR reorganization. Rohrbach says he believes all parties can find common ground. Well, I think there's a lot of negotiations to be done there, but I do think that DHHR is awfully big and awfully unwieldy. Now, my hope would be that we can get this down to three divisions that we can focus the leadership on more. Now, is three the magic number? Maybe, maybe not. There's this 60-day session to decide where we're going with that. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of work with the executive branch on that, and we may settle on a different number. But I think for the citizens of West Virginia, the commitment is there from the legislature and the governor that DHHR has to be made a more functional agency than it currently is. The job of the legislative reporter is to pay attention. There's so much going on. However, none of us have time to catch all of the events and even less time to report on all of them. Often on this show, Fridays, our reporters will sit down to discuss what they saw this week and what they expect the major stories will be in the coming weeks. We like to bring in reporters from other news organizations as well to get their perspectives because no one reporter can catch everything. In our Capitol studio today, Randy Yowie and Chris Schultz are joined by Metro News statewide correspondent Brad McElhenney. Thank you, Bob. Gentlemen, let's start out with the Justice 50% personal income tax cut proposal. I know that Revenue Secretary Dave Hardy presented this proposal to the House Finance Committee yesterday. Brad, you were there at that meeting. What did you glean? That is already on the move. The governor presented it and made it a priority at his State of the State address on Wednesday evening, and no sooner than that, Thursday evening, the House Finance Committee took it up, passed it out, it's headed to the House floor, and next week we'll zip on over to the Senate where we will see how it does. The leading senators, Senate President Craig Blair and Senate Finance Chairman Tarr, appear to have a very different view of what tax reform in West Virginia would look like and are at odds with the governor over that and other issues. Uh, so. My takeaway is that this is a priority not only for Governor Justice, but for the House, as noted by their speed of move, but the big questions in the Senate. Yeah, we heard um, House Majority Leader Householder mention this a couple weeks ago on the 50%, so it's, everybody's had time for it to matriculate. But Senator Tarr seems to want to continue to push for the failed Amendment 2 issue and try to cut out these property taxes on business and inventory. But that has to be done through a uh, congressional, I mean, not a congressional, but a constitutional amendment. So I don't know how he might get that back on the table. Tar has described a, a bit of a variation, and it is to take the same areas of property tax, the personal property taxes on your vehicle, as well as the personal property taxes that businesses pay on their machinery, equipment, and inventory and apply a tax credit to those. So you, Randy, would go to your local sheriff and you would pay your property taxes 
as usual, but then when it comes around that you would pay your income taxes, you would fill out a form to seek a credit for the personal property taxes you've already paid. It's a little bit cumbersome, but Senate Finance Chairman Tarr believes that that is a strategic way to encourage business growth in West Virginia, to relieve them of the burden of those taxes. Yeah, because they thought that the rebate that you would get if they put this um, driver's license, I mean, the, your license tax to a rebate instead of a constitutional vote would be cumbersome as well. So I guess we'll just see what happens. Let's move on to education. And Chris, you've been our education reporter at West Virginia Public Broadcasting the last couple months, diving into it. And it looks like these early grade initiatives look very promising for early passage as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, it seems like we're seeing a united front uh, across both chambers as well as uh, in the governor's administration. You know, a lot of what we're seeing come out early are things that we heard Superintendent Roach introduce over the last couple of uh, Board of Education meetings. You know, these are things that we've heard him talking about back in November, um, really trying to take the initiative as schools come out of COVID-19 lockdown and, and try and get these kids caught back up and take advantage of that opportunity of basically restarting our education system to improve it. Um, you know, some of the things that we're hearing about is funding for more intervention and coaching at early ages. Uh, I think that there is a real recognition now, not just in West Virginia, but nationally, that our current third graders um, really missed out on a lot of the benefits, especially when it comes to reading, that, that fundamental skill that's gonna carry you through the rest of your education and the rest of your life. A lot of that happens early on in kindergarten, first and second grade, and those were the classes that all of these kids missed, this whole cohort. Um, so making sure that we have the resources in our classrooms, in our schools, to make sure that these kids get the interventions and get it back up to speed where they're supposed to be is something that Superintendent Roach and the Board of Education uh, have been talking about for several months, and now we're seeing it actually get the, the financial backing that it's gonna need to be made a reality. One issue that looks like everybody's on board with, I know Speaker Hanshaw has pushed for this for the past couple of years, these early initiatives, and then we hear in the State of the State address was the 35 or $37 million for first grade teachers' aides. So they're serious about it, and it looks like everybody is on board. Uh, we're talking about school safety and this trouble alert app, and this all came to light heavily with that whole SWAT thing that happened about a month ago, didn't it? Yeah, so this is again something else that um, Governor Justice uh, gave special attention to during one of his briefings a couple months ago when the, the agreement was finalized between this company and the state, uh, but it is now official, you know, as far as I know, it has been paid for. People can go out and download it. It's called the CSA app. It's actually got a couple different names, but I think that that's the, the one that they're going with because it's concise and uh, it's easy to find on the App Store, whatever phone you're using. And basically, it's just a way uh, to consolidate reporting. And regardless of where you are in the state, the app supposedly allows you to report a concern. That can be an individual or an event or an incident. And it should then take that and communicate it to the relevant authorities. Um, and yeah, you know, when these swatting uh, incidents occurred last month, which is not unique to West Virginia, unfortunately. This is something that we've been seeing happening across the country in schools. Uh, as you said, very concerning. Um, but one of the things that uh, leaders in West Virginia promoted was that this app is available in case something like this happens. Now, as to how that would work in 
a real life immediate scenario, I'm not so sure um, because it is a false alarm, as you said. So, uh, you know, unless kids are going in or parents are going in and reporting that something is not happening, I'm not sure how that would be relevant, but it is there. Let's go to PEIA. I mean, the red flags went up like the Dickens when Wheeling Hospital announced, what was it, 10 days ago now, that as of July 1st, they won't accept PEIA insurance payments. Whoa, timed it right out, right before session, so on and so forth. And, and here's another thing that's been pushed through right now. So with um, uh, the reimbursement rates are currently at 59%, and that's why these hospitals say they, you know, they can't pay for their people, their equipment, their day-to-day -day operations. They want to raise it up to 100%. Is this just like stopgap funding for a quick fix? Well, it's to put those medical providers at ease. There was a lot of thought that the first one to announce it would not be taking PEA patients anymore was Wheeling Hospital. But there are a lot of other similar hospitals along West Virginia's borders with similar economic pressures. So on day one, the Senate passed a bill that would allocate $40 million to raise the reimbursement rate for those medical providers to 110% of what Medicare pays. The governor in his State of the State address also emphasized that allocation. And you got to think that the House is there too. Uh, you know, the, the issue I think then becomes, is, is PEIA a financial time bomb in other ways? And there are already questions among legislators uh, including the new House Health Chairwoman, Amy Summers, uh, the Majority Whip in the Senate, Ryan Weld, and others, about what can we do to make sure that PEIA, the Public Employees Insurance Agency, is, is stable next year, the year after that, the year after that. And, and that, those questions are not resolved. It's that third year after that that everybody's concerned about when justice is gone because he's pledged that $100 million every year to just to keep it at a level. But when you look at those long-range predictions, you talk to somebody like Dale Lee, uh, you know, with the Education Association, uh, the numbers that they're going to need are in the three, four hundred million dollars that's going to be need to be allocated in in 25 and 26, and that's the challenge. Just you know, can they fund it long-range now? Can the legislature deal with that now? You know what? I mean, I think that that's why we're all here, right? Is to find out how and and <laughs> and if that's possible. But I mean. When you have a state like West Virginia, where you have such a large percentage of the population that is state employees, that's going to become an issue, and it needs to be addressed. And that's exactly what we heard from Senator Weld on the floor of the Senate on the first day. You know, this has been an issue for several years, and this bill is trying to address it uh, completely after a lot of stopgap measures. DHHR, let's split it up. When it wanted to, <laughs> they wanted to do it last year into two. Justice vetoed a passed bill. Uh, now it's the thought of splitting it up into three, and this is something that we're hearing from both the House and the Senate as well. The House and Senate seem to agree already, but the conflict is with the governor, who so far has said he doesn't want to make that kind of change. He wants DHHR, so far, to be one agency and sanctioned a million-dollar report from an outside entity, the McChrystal Group, that reached that conclusion to say that dividing the agency would cause more complications than, it's, than you would really gain. Uh, but the House and the Senate, the Senate already passed on day one, lickety split a bill to divide the agency into three, health, human resources, and the facilities that take care of, of West Virginians who need additional help beyond their own homes. 
the House expects to take that bill up very shortly. Uh, I believe on Tuesday, the new House Health Committee will be taking it up. And so early action, and why is that early action happening? One, they've talked about it for months. The other is the potential override of a veto. Well, um, we've got a little bit of time left. There's still, I still got a long list here because there's gonna be a very, very busy schedule. And it's already seems to be going faster than it ever has in the last several years. So we'll have these reporter roundtables on Friday. I wanna thank you, Brad, for being here. Uh, of course, Chris as well. And um, we will send it back to you now, Bob. Tune into the legislature today, Monday through Friday at six. We'll have more news and a lot of interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily in our radio news program, WV West Virginia Morning, and on our WV News site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and the Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Bob Brunner for everyone here at WVPB. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. For the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, committed to teaching, research, and professional training with degree programs in multiple locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at Hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at Segra.com.